0: hi everyone it's Jarek. before we start today's episode i'd like to address our listeners really quickly and apologize for the lack of consistent content i talked about this briefly in a reddit comment but to reach as many people as possible i'll repeat myself here what started as an idea to produce a running audio commentary following the jeopardy national college championship quickly turned into this much broader project where i would reach out to past jeopardy contestants and ask if they'd like to talk about their experience being on the show and maybe even do a deep dive into the games they played. And in order to hold a conversation slash conduct an interview that's insightful and fun for both the guests and audience listening, I have to do a lot of research ahead of time, which can involve me looking at their profile and Games on J Archive, their stats on the Jeopardy fan website, official box scores if they're available on Jeopardy.com, and any interviews a contestant may have done in the past as a way to either avoid asking the same questions or follow up on a topic I think others would like to know more about. I'm a one-man show, so I'm the one who does the pre-production, production, production, and post-production. This definitely isn't something I can do on a weekly or even bi-weekly basis, unless I have a team of people helping me, so for now, post-podium is simply a hobby. And I think it's best kept that way, at least for now, to avoid the potential for burnout. There are only so many people out there who can say they've been on Jeopardy!, and I love getting to relive that experience with each of my guests. The last thing I'd want is to treat this podcast like a chore, because at that point, it wouldn't be fun anymore. So to the fans of post-podium listening, I hope you can understand where I'm coming from. If you want more frequent updates about when an episode might be in the works, you can follow me on Twitter at TheJericBrual. That's J-E-R-I-C-B-R-U-A-L. Now, back to our regularly scheduled episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to Post Podium, a podcast where former Jeopardy! contestants are instead given questions and asked to provide answers. I'm your host, Jarek Bruel, and joining me today is Eric Ahasik. A meteorologist from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Eric is another addition to our growing list of Jeopardy! giant killers who've been interviewed on this show, this time defeating 16-game ultra champion Ryan Long on Monday, June 6, 2022. But what makes Eric unique is not only is he a giant killer... But he's also a giant himself. You see, Eric went on to win five more games, a total of $162,601, and finished as a six-game super champion before eventually falling to Megan Waxpress, who also simultaneously holds the titles of Giant Killer and Giant. And yes, we are anticipating Ryan, Eric, and Megan to return and compete in the upcoming Tournament of Champions later this year. With Amy Schneider's run in the rearview mirror and Mateo Roach's run in full swing, I'll be asking Eric questions about what it was like to prepare for Jeopardy during what's arguably its most competitive season yet. And to what extent did Eric's career as a meteorologist affect the way he approached the game? The following conversation will include Game and Outcome spoilers from Eric's episodes, so as always, if you haven't watched them already, I suggest you watch those episodes first and listen to this podcast later. We hope you enjoy this episode of Post Podium. So like always, let's kick things off with your name, when you made your Jeopardy debut and how you did and finished.
1: Okay. My name is Eric Ahasek. I'm a meteorologist from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I debuted on Jeopardy on June 6th, uh, 2022, and I managed to win six of them. And uh, I think it was $160,601 was the final total, which was beyond my imagination, but uh, yeah. And then... Uh, Last episode was June 14th.
0: So for those new to the podcast, Eric is actually the third giant killer we've had on as a guest. And the first guest who is expected to be in the stacked tournament of champions later this year. Eric, I'm not usually one to make assumptions, but based on the research I did before interviewing you today, I think I've already come up with a decent overview of what your contestant experience might have been like. Would you like to hear it? Sure, let's hear it. Okay, so you walked into the Jeopardy! soundstage nearly three months ago. And were informed that the current Jeopardy! champion had won 16 games in a row, while simultaneously Matea Roach was tearing it up on TV and racked up 10 wins by your taping date. By the end of the day, you had not only won more than six figures, but you suddenly found yourself joining Ryan Long and Matea in the next TOC. Now, that might have been oversimplifying things, so I'd like to ask if you could fill us in on the details. Can you recall what kind of emotions you were feeling at the beginning of the tape day? versus after that fifth victory? And what was the atmosphere like in the studio once everyone realized what they just witnessed? I know this story gets crazier when you get Megan involved, but before we get ahead of ourselves, please take us through the events that happened on Tuesday, April 19th exclusively.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was probably the wildest rollercoaster of emotions that I've had throughout a whole day. I mean, it was like 12 hours of just... Up and down, up and down, up and down. So like you said, I, I get to the studio and of course, like you're, you're super nervous. I think everyone on Jeopardy is super nervous. It's your one shot, right? And you kind of know, well, what if I run into a, a Matt Modi or Amy Schneider or somebody has happened already this year. So you can't really control that aspect of it. And you get to the studio, and the first thing you do is look around. Is Matea here? There's no way Matea can be here, right? You know, but uh, sure enough, she wasn't there. So you relax a little bit, maybe. And then they introduce the defending champion. And yeah, you hear those numbers, the wins, and then the money. And heart just sinks to the floor. It uh, it was a little dark there for a little bit, not going to lie. Just thinking, I this might be it. I'm just going to run to someone better than me, and I can't do anything about that. I just need to try and enjoy this as much as possible. So yeah, that was kind of the vibe going in. It was, I'm not saying I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose. Woe is me. But it was just kind of preparing yourself for the possibility slash likelihood that, yeah, I might lose this one. So just make sure you stay in the moment, enjoy it. I had a pretty aggressive strategy plan in place, which you saw in my games, but that really made it no doubts. I had to go all in when you're playing a super champ. You got to go all in in daily doubles. You got to be aggressive no matter what. So that kind of helped any doubts I may have had with my strategy. And then, yeah, the game was just a, a roller coaster. I mean, it, it's so much harder up there on stage than it is watching from home. I'm sure everyone will say that. But you're frustrated because you're not buzzing in or there's questions you think you should know but you just can't think of them or you're not confident and buzzing in at the moment and uh that final jeopardy question my hand was shaking like i have bad handwriting to begin with so i don't think it was too noticeable but my hand was literally shaking writing down that final jeopardy answer and i wasn't really sure it was right um i had it was like literally i read one wikipedia page i had one sentence that i thought said that Castor and Follett were on the argo but that's it was kind of the best guess i had and so that reaction I did was like the first time I realized I just won and, and beat Ryan and was basically going to live to play another day because I kind of was prepared that I was going to lose. And then to just keep doing it, just take it one question at a time, let alone one game at a time, but just win another one. All right. Win another one. Cause I mean, I'm sure you you've heard other contestants talk about this. You get about 15 minutes between games, right? Mm. It's, it's that fast. You, you, they announce you won, you walk off stage, you change your clothes real fast, you get your hair and makeup touched up, and then you're right back out there on stage. And the contestants are already up there and that score is zero to zero to zero. And you gotta got, got to go out there and do it again. And so just to do that, you know, five times in one day with that first time being a super champion, I think like pretty much what um, Jonathan Fisher had to go through. I think he took down Matt on a Monday and then ran the rest of the table. So. I'll have to talk with him about his experience because yeah, it's, it's just to, to walk in thinking, oh man, I'm probably going to lose this and then leave with the wins and knowing you, you know, at least had an invitation to the tournament of champions and then let alone the money, right. That almost came like third after all that was (laughs) just, just a wild experience.
0: So you defeated an ultra champion, won five games, won over a hundred thousand dollars and earned an invite to the next TOC. You go back to your hotel room, but before you go to sleep and get ready for the next taping day, did you call anyone to let them know how you did? Because if all that happened to me in the span of 12 hours, I don't know how long I'd be able to stay tight-lipped.
1: Yeah. So my fiance was out there with me. She went out to California with me. Obviously there's no audience during COVID, which I think was, I kind of would prefer not having anybody there to watch me just because I don't know, you don't need any extra eyes on you. So it's was kind of good just to go in there with just yourself to worry about right um not let anyone else down I guess but no I actually didn't really tell anyone else uh, my parents were maybe two other people I would have invited out because they're huge Jeopardy fans they would love to watch a game behind the scenes but obviously I knew I had won five games at that point and made the turn of champions and I don't know I thought it'd be more fun for them if they kind of got the surprise of that of watching the games in real time so I decided I wasn't going to tell them so no it was it was it was radio silence there I basically uh got back to the hotel. We stayed in Santa Monica because we're from Minnesota. It snowed like two days before I went out there. So we it was an excuse to go take a week vacation to Los Angeles. So we stayed out there for the whole week, stayed near the beach and just, you know, got back to the hotel, kind of looked in the mirror. My face is caked in makeup. I'm still in my suit. And that was the first time it hit me where I'm just like, what did you just do? You know, uh, and, and then kind of met my fiance down and then we walked down and watched the sunset in the beach, which was a really good reset back to real life. But like I said, you got to get to bed that night and go back and do it all again the next morning.
0: Wednesday, April 20th, you win the first game of the day, but eventually your streak comes to an end when Megan Walkspress wins the game by $2. Assuming you stayed for the rest of the taping day, you were able to watch Megan win the next three games, making her a four-day Jeopardy champion with a potential TOC invite at stake. And the reason why I use the word potential is because, under normal circumstances, four consecutive wins is good enough to receive an invite to the TOC. But as of the recording of this episode, Jackie Kelly is currently the only four-day champion on the TOC public roster on Jeopardy.com. With the way Season 38 is progressing, I wouldn't be surprised if Jackie is removed from the roster and another five-day champion takes her place. So my question for you, Eric, is did it ever cross your mind that day that you, Ryan, and Megan, three members of the April 19th and April 20th contestant cohorts, could be competing against each other in the next TOC? I
1: mean, not at all. I was just, I was honestly so happy for Megan. When I lost that game, there was like five seconds when, because I thought I was good. I was thought and we'll probably talk about that game later. I thought I was good on my answer. I thought I had read the clue within the clue and was looking for someone who told Knitson to say that. So I was like, I think I'm pretty good. And when they said Knitson was correct, I pretty much knew I had lost. So I had like five seconds of, ah, darn it. I overthought this question. But then I looked over, you know, after they had announced the scores and, you know, Megan kind of had the same reaction and same look on her face that I did when I found out that I beat, you know, Ryan Lawn, who seemed unbeatable at the time. Because Megan was an alternate from the first day. Yeah. So she basically had seen me rack up all those wins. And I just, it just, it reminded me so much of how I felt in that moment. Oh my God, what did I just do? I was happy for her, honestly, in, like right away. So there was the, the disappointment lasted for like five seconds. And then just to watch her keep winning. And the way she did it with just the wagering masterclass, just showing there are so many different ways to win on Jeopardy. Like Obviously, the Matt Amodio, james holtzauer way is, is what everyone wants to do, but not everyone can be those people, right? So if you can't know literally everything brush up on your wagering strategy and, and, you know, you can certainly do some damage that way. So it was just so impressive to just see her do it um, game after game. And like I said, she was on four, right. And she mm. had to come back the next week. And so I just can't imagine, you know, cause I know I was really nervous into my fifth game, knowing what five games meant or put a lot of pressure on myself. So just having to go home for a week and come back with that in the back of your, your mind had to be really tough, but man, Megan was just such a, just so calm and so cool all the time. So I would be nervous the whole week, but I'm sure she was, you know, probably sleeping a lot easier than I would have been.
0: I'm curious to know what the Jeopardy! watch party experience is like for a multi-day champion like yourself. I don't think it made the final cut, but when I talked to Roan, we were wondering how Amy planned her watch parties, considering she appeared on the show 41 times. To start, why don't you talk about what it was like to advertise your Jeopardy! debut, and how your watch party went, and everyone's reactions to your win over Ryan. Then you can tell us if you did anything special for your following six appearances.
1: Yeah. So I don't really do social media. Like I have a Twitter <laughs> account that I just like use to chat news and sports and everything. but I don't really post anything. So, you know, you you, you prep for this stuff, right? You know that, oh man, I'm going to be probably a little bit of a thin year for a week or two. And so I could just hide, right? I could just lurk and let it all wash over. But I'm like, no, this is really cool to be part of the Jeopardy community and you know, kind of be a thin in the Jeopardy world. So I, I want to I enjoy that, even if it's something I might not normally do. So like I made a Twitter account the like afternoon before my games aired. Like that, it was that short notice, right? Um, And and uh, it's kind of advertised it via social media that way. But, you know, obviously my parents knew when I was going to be on. My friends knew when my episode was going to be on. I let people from work know. They tell you don't talk about anything until you get your official photo at the mm. podium and with Mayim. So that was probably like a week or 10 days or so before the air date. So um that's kinda when everyone publicly was getting to know about it. I know my my parents taught like they're active on social media, so they posted about it. And it got around <laughs> it got around town, my hometown in Champaign, Illinois. So they actually got interviewed first. They interviewed my parents about like, oh, how's it feel to have your son be on Jeopardy? And I didn't, they didn't know how I did at this point. They just knew I was going to be on Jeopardy. But yeah, I had a watch party with, um, my parents actually came up to Minneapolis, which was cool. Um, I had some some of our friends here. had some people from work show up. And nobody knew except for me and um, me and my fiance, really. So it was... You know, I think they saw that. Some of them had watched Shepard before, and a lot of them didn't. So when they see 16 game $300,000, like, I heard the groan from everybody. Like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm so sorry for you, you know? Um, and they're just really cool to watch them, like, kind of like live and die in every question. The big cheers every time I got one right, you know, the groans when I got one wrong. So I got a, a big daily double run late in that game. Like, I was going for a runaway, and I got it wrong. Hmm. And, you know, I still had a small lead, but... That could have been it for me right there. So that was a pretty tense moment late in the game. Luckily, I knew what happened after that. But uh, yeah, but then after that, I didn't really have any other watch parties just because, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just people, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a huge planner party person either. I'm pretty low key. So I watched the the games with my parents um, and, and my fiance. They went home after like the third or fourth, I think the fourth game. And they had some friends from college come up for the weekend. It was my friend's birthday, so we kind of did stuff up in Minneapolis and and uh, you know, I didn't tell them I'd w- keep winning, but they were able to watch the Thursday and Friday games with me and we were able to do some fun stuff over the weekend too. So, I kind of had a, informal watch parties, right? But like I had the one big one at the start.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. I looked it up earlier and Jeopardy airs in the 20 Cities Market on KRE NBC at 4:30 p.m. local time. I have to ask as a meteorologist, was there ever a point when you'd be on the news reporting the weather in the first half hour and then be on Jeopardy immediately after? Because that was an amusing thought I had when I realized you had previous experience in front of the camera.
1: So I am not a TV meteorologist. I work for the National Weather Service, which is Uh, the the government agency behind the scenes. But no, like I would watch, I know a lot of the TV meteorologists just do my job. Yeah. So I would, um, you know, we'd watch, you know, they, you'd be watching, they have a, they have a local news on, before the episode airs at 4:30 here. And so you would watch, um, you would be like, Hey, look, they do a little promo. It's like, can you make it another win? Watch meteorologist Eric Hudson and jeopardy, you know, and that'd be kind of cool. What I was worried about was, you know, severe weather, tornado warnings, severe thunderstorm warnings, Impact the area, which is pretty common in the late afternoon around here in the summertime. So I was worried that, you know, there'd be tornadoes or something during one of my games and they would, I wouldn't be able to watch it. But luckily, at least they didn't cut in for anything. There were a few severe storms in other parts of the state, but nothing that they had to, you know, cut in the jeopardy for.
0: Speaking of your local affiliate network, you did an interview for KRE 11 the day your first victory aired. And in that interview, you talked about, among other things, your background in trivia. You did academic quiz bowl in grade school, watched Ken Jennings' 74-game run back in 2004, and have been trying out for the show since 2006. And if my math is correct, that's at most 16 attempts as of this year. With all this in mind, I have a couple questions for you, Eric. First, did you ever go to any in-person auditions for Jeopardy when those were still a thing? When Danielle Maurer was on the podcast, she talked about how she'd go to different cities to take a second knowledge test and later play a mock game of Jeopardy, both of which are now held remotely on Zoom. Because you've been trying out for so long, I was wondering if you experienced this as well. And if so, could you share some memories of traveling to different cities, meeting other fans of the show, or anything else you can remember?
1: I only qualified for an audition I think three or four times. Out of that sixteen times of flying, I failed that test more times than I passed it. Like I'm, I'll, I'll, I'm honest with you. Um, and I got an audition the very first year. That was when I was in high school, which was up at Navy Pier in Chicago, which was really cool. I mean, I'm in high school and it was a long time ago, so I don't have a ton of memories of it. But yeah, like you know, there's a lot of smart kids running around. Then I got one in college. Same thing. T- uh, college tournament, same kind of thing. It was also at Navy Pier in Chicago. It's the same as the zoo, as the as the process is now. It's just that the the second test the personality interview in the mock game or in person instead of being, you know, on zoom. Other than that, the process is still the same. Um, the third time, I think then I got one more time. I can't remember it was one or two more times when I was in grad school and I was working where I couldn't make the auditions basically. And I it was kind of very last minute where, I just, one time was actually that storm chasing story I talked about in my first game where I literally driven 25,000 miles across the central plains in two months. The day after I got home, I would have had to have driven all the way out to Kansas city, which is like a seven hour drive to go audition for jeopardy. And I just could not be in a car anymore. <laughs> and then there was another time where I just didn't have, it was early in my job at work. Now I would have gone up to Oklahoma city. I was living in the desert in Texas at the time. Another, I would have flown out there I just couldn't really get off of work. So I was a little worried that I like, got blacklisted from Jeopardy for a few years <laughs> because I kind of didn't show up to these and, and I didn't let them know I wasn't coming. So there, then there was like five or six years in a row where I, I guess I must have failed the test I didn't hear anything from them. But you know, some years you feel like you do pretty good, you don't hear anything. Some years you feel like you do bad, you don't hear anything. But then eventually this year, like I felt good on the first test. Um, I got the invite for the second test. I thought I bombed the second test. I thought I did horrible on that one, but I I didn't and here we go so don't give up if you're a prospective contestant because like I said I I've probably failed that test more times than I passed it honestly
0: could you take us through your audition timeline and tell us when you took the anytime test when you took the second knowledge test over zoom when you took your uh, interview and mock game over zoom and when you finally got the call yeah.
1: So the first anytime test, I guess, right. Cause yeah, it used to be, you can only take it like three days a year in late January, but uh, anytime test was in March of 2021. Then I think they, um, actually you know, I heard back pretty soon that I would passed that one, but the first link they gave me to like sign up for the proctored second test, I couldn't make in the time slots as my job. And so I emailed them saying, Hey, like, is there any other ones? And they didn't e- e- they didn't get back to me for like, a month and I kind of forgot about it. And then I found the email kind of sitting in my folder and I was like, I should probably follow up on this. And then they were right away. Oh, we're so sorry here. Yeah. Here's a, here's a new slate of, of dates. Uh, so that one was in July. It was about a year ago now, like around 4th of July, 2021. And then I had my audition in August of 2021 and, um, got the call in early March to be on in mid-April. So kind of like a whole year through the whole process, but there were a few hiccups with it, you know, the year there. Um, But yeah, it was about a whole year from start to finish, I guess
0: it's really interesting you say that about like oh you had to like follow up with the the sony people so they could like get back to you and whatnot because i see um sometimes occasionally on the jeopardy subreddit there's people who are going through that sort of thing they're like oh i can't make these dates so what should i do am i do i have to wait another year no if you if you follow up with them they will respond i mean they, they want you on the show i mean they're you you're probably in like their filing cabinet or something so they're probably gonna see your name and be like oh we missed this person we we should, you know, follow up with them. So never be afraid to reach out and ask to reschedule. Cause they'll definitely try and accommodate you for sure.
1: They are the nicest people ever. And oh my God, are they great at their jobs? And yeah, like they will email any questions you have about the audition process. They'll help you out. Uh, I had some people actually DM me about like eligibility questions, whether like, Hey, I worked for a TV station. Is that, you know, I haven't been getting auditions. Is that why? And I'm just like, Hey, just, give them an email. They will let you know straight up, you know, like that they will, they'll help you out with that. So certainly any questions you have during the process, don't be afraid to ask them because they're, they're just, they're really, really nice and really, really good at their jobs.
0: Now, something that I found rather interesting while on Jeopardy contestant Twitter was the fact that Zach Goslin, who was on the show earlier this year on February 3rd, was actually in the same zoom call with you during the mock game and interview phase and it reminded me of when Kira Donegan was on the podcast and told me that not only were we in the same zoom call for the same stage of the audition process but two other people in the call had also made it to the show this season so my advice to anyone who gets to that point while auditioning for Jeopardy write down everyone's names because you never know if the next super champion is in the same virtual space as you <laughs> yeah i don't remember anything
1: really from that audition right i again it's just another year and it's like, all right whatever we'll take it we'll go through the process we'll see what happens um and you know i'm not good with names to begin with let alone when there's like 12 little boxes on your tv on your on your laptop screen right so uh but that was cool yeah that was was cool um Let me know about that. That was pretty neat.
0: So once you got the call to be on the show, how did you use your time effectively to study? In the KRE interview, you credited some of your success to reading Wikipedia articles, but did you use any other techniques? Perhaps flashcards, one of the more popular study methods uh, past guests have used? Were you focused on polishing your strengths or were you more concerned with your weaker categories?
1: i don't think you can effectively like cram if you just wait till you get the call like if you you know you get the three-week call or whatever it is you can you know get your presidents in order and some of that stuff but i mean i well, i started watching the show again after i passed the audition so i was like well i'm in the pool and i kind of told myself like if i get another chance at an audition if they didn't actually blacklist me or something i want to make sure i'm ready right and so i got the audition it's august I'm like, all right, I should probably start watching Jeopardy, and so I haven't watched it in like 10 years, um, just with job and work and school and everything, and sure enough, Matt is playing in August, right, and oh my god, to not watch Jeopardy forever and then watch this guy and know there's a chance I have to play him, maybe, or someone like him. I am nowhere near <laughs> good enough, right? I mean, no no one's good enough. I'm still not good enough you know, to, to match up with Matt, but you know, I was I was kind of a wake up call like, wow, if I this is my one shot and I actually want to do this, like I need to I need to work on some stuff. So I started watching the show. and it's amazing tracking my stats, like tracking your out score, tracking your daily double percentage, final jeopardy percentage categories. Right, like that's really helpful to know where you're good, where you're bad, where you can take your shots, where you should hold off. And it's amazing watching. I mean, it's cool watching your score increase as you keep watching. And you know, the best way to study for Jeopardy is just watch the show because they. They're never gonna reuse questions, but they tend to ask the same things about the same people and same topics. And also just not guessing, because when you track your score and you realize you're losing $5,000 a game because of your stupid guesses you keep making, that took a long time to kind of pound that out of me to just don't guess, don't guess, don't guess. I started doing the flashcards thing over the winter just because it's below zero here in the winter, man. Like. You can go out and run and, which I'll do sometimes if it's like in the teens or in the twenties, but when it's below zero, I'm not going outside. So, you know, I was staying inside and I would do stuff like top 100 authors of all time, right? You know, Virginia Woolf, what did she write? Who are the two main characters? What's the plot summary? And just go about it that way. Okay. Top 100 actors of all time. What authors did they win? Okay. And just kind of make flashcards like that. You know, I think at its core, Jeopardy is kind of like, you call it Pavlov's, right? You know, where it's just like, you talk about... Mississippi author Mark Twain. Just little connections like that, and forming as many of those as you can. I feel like you can get a pretty good web of knowledge by trying to do that. Like I said, you don't need to know everything about everything on Jeopardy, but if you need, you need to know a little bit about everything. So I don't need to read all of Virginia Wolf's books. I, I hope I can read actually one or two of them. so They sound pretty neat. But you know, if you know the two main characters in the plot somewhere, you're probably good for Jeopardy. You can move on to somebody else or move on to another topic. So. I did that over the winter, um, you know, starting up like probably January. This was just so cold and I didn't have anything better to do. That yeah, was really cool, seeing the jump in performance and scoring after that. You know, when you actually, nothing's better, man, than when you like study a flashcard. Like, and I use Anki, the, the flashcard mm-hmm. app where it's spaced repetition. I have no idea how that thing works, but all I know is it does work. You learn stuff you never thought you would learn. You might see it in those flashcards like 50 times in a row, but then eventually it sticks in your head. And to see stuff on Jeopardy that you learned like a week ago is the best feeling in the world. You know, that <laughs> lets you know you're on the right track. So yeah, but, and I was lucky where, you know, I couldn't do that forever, right? Like I'm like, I can't do this for a year. That's, I'll drive myself crazy. So I got really lucky, I guess, where I got the call kind of in March, which is still winter up here in Minnesota. So then I knew for sure I was gonna be on. And could really see the finish line at that point. It was kind of just good timing, I guess, with the the prep I did and and when I got to go on the show.
0: By the time you got on your flight to LA, what categories did you feel most prepared for and what categories did you feel least prepared for?
1: Oh uh, I mean there's probably more I was least prepared for than felt really good on. I feel good on the academic subjects science, geography, history, um, that kind of stuff. Pop culture is a weakness Now obviously you can fits that right and that's something Mm -hmm. I think I definitely shored up and that's what I'm working on right now is you know it's not too hard to know like who won all these Oscars and who's like winning the top album of the year and that kind of stuff that's not stuff I know naturally I just don't care like I don't care about celebrities and stuff like that but you don't get the privilege of not caring about stuff on Jeopardy you kind of have to know a little bit about everything that's one that whenever I see a pop culture category I'm always like oh boy let's just try and get like two out of five in this one and move on you know um, which is kind of the key. You never want to get shut out on a category in Jeopardy. The wordplay ones, I I don't like. That's something you can never study for, right? You just need to be a word person, and those are either I know it or I don't. Like it, some, it comes to me immediately, or I'm never gonna get it. Maybe if you gave me like a minute on a wordplay category, I would come up with it, but not in like five seconds. So. I'll I'll like run a wordplay category five out of five and then there'll be some idea like one out of five on just because it's just whatever <laughs> that day, whatever the words are used and they just aren't clicking. So it's very hit or miss. But that's kind of the good thing about Jeopardy when you track your stats is, you know, you can identify your weaknesses and, and try to shore those up the best you can.
0: It's funny you mention history and geography because according to the official box scores on Jeopardy.com. You got all five clues correct in three categories during your run, which included Ancient History in Game 4, A History of Nonviolence in Game 5, and Isles of the British Isles in Game 7. Is that something you realized in the moment, or did you watch the episode and be like, oh wow, I ran that category?
1: No, I mean, because I don't really play a top-down strategy, so like running categories wasn't, you know, it's cool, like, but it's not, you know, you might accidentally run one, I guess, if you don't like Twelve, sixteen, two, eight, four, or something like that. But it was actually, I remember when I ran the Isles of the British Isles one, I was I was so focused in coming back because I had no buzzer rhythm whatsoever in that game. So I was so focused on getting it back and coming back that I kind of ran those all five in a row. Now, all of a sudden, I just hear, like, applause. And I kind of, like, what was that? Looked over, <laughs> and it was, like, yeah, applause when you run a category. And I had no idea. Uh, I had no idea in those other two either. Um, so, nope, didn't really know I ran them. But... Um, that'd be more fun with an you know when there's a studio audience and hopefully they're able to bring that back you know starting next season or something hopefully covid st- you know stays down and no other pandemics come back because i think it'd be really cool you know mm-hmm. you get the applause with the with the contestants in the audience but to actually hear that applause in a big daily double bet or when you run when you run a category would be really cool i think it'd really help kind of fuel me as a contestant to kind of build up that energy
0: next i want to discuss the jeopardy buzzer with you i've mentioned this book so many times on the podcast that it's pretty much free advertising at this point, but considering the content and impact it's had on past contestants, it's hard not to talk about it. So Eric, let me ask you, have you read Secrets of the Buzzer by Fritz Holznagel? And if so, did it affect the way you approached the buzzer during both rehearsal and during actual gameplay?
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, it's it's on Amazon, it's pretty cheap, and Fritz is a cool guy, so like, you know, and he wrote a good book, so like, you help him out a little bit right go out there and check it out what was really useful i thought was his he has a website that's in the book
0: Mm. where
1: it's pretty much like a buzzer website where he reads some questions you can time yourself so i got so focused on speed right trying to get that reaction time as fast as possible like timing the exact dead i was like i'm gonna be a voice guy that's what ken does brad did i'm gonna go right after the second they stop talking i'm gonna hit that buzzer i was getting that reaction time like well under 100 microseconds like 50 microseconds sometimes, I was dialed in. But then it's like, that's not the same timing you get in on the stage, right? And I think some, they'll change it up. They will change up their timing. So I never felt like I had any sort of rhythm on the buzzer at all, the whole time. If I looked at my stats in some of my games, I was hitting like 75% getting buzzing in first, which is really fast. But uh, so clearly I had some rhythm at time in some of these games, but it didn't feel like it on stage. Um, I, I kind of abandoned the pure sound thing just as, I don't know, it's probably coming in too early. Like there's a chance your reaction time is faster than the person flipping the switch's reaction time, in which case you're always going to be coming in too early. So I kind of do a thing where I'd have like the lights on the side of the board in one eye and I'd be listening for with the other and try to like mesh those the best I could. And, uh, like I said, it, it, I've worked at times, right. But there'd be times I'd, I'd go on a streak and there'd be times where I just didn't have it and I'd be getting beat. The second day, I just, I felt really good in warmups. I was doing fast in warmups, but then during the games, I don't know, I think I was just trying to maybe push a little too much and got a little too fast again. And I just never really felt like I had any sort of rhythm the second day. So that's something where I need to get better at for this tournament champions. I need to, I need to figure out, and like I said, my buzzer stats were pretty good, but I know I can do a lot. I know I can do a lot better and I know I need to do a lot better. So, you know, I'll probably be, tweaking some stuff with with fritz's site um i actually started with my hands behind my back my buzzer kind of grip that just felt more natural to me when i was using my pen clicking along to the games it just felt like i was a little bit quicker that way uh but like i said i I just wasn't getting i was you know the buzzer stats in the first game were pretty even among all of us but i felt like i just didn't beat a lot and i was did not do well before the first commercial break of my second game same thing i just didn't beat a lot And so i just i switched to the fritz grip he talks about when you kind of cross your arms in front of you and it worked i guess or whatever happened worked um and i just kind of had some a good rhythm from there i kept going through the rest of the day yeah like i said it's it's a it's just a good book to learn and just just knowing what to expect going in which is why your podcast is so great because you get these contestant stories from behind the scenes helps so much because you're so nervous everything's new it goes so fast but to just know what to expect so nothing's really new helps so much. And so that's where the book's really good. Just as you know, like, the rules of the buzzer and what to expect. And then you can kind of work on your own strategy from there. And, and obviously, maybe try some things in the rehearsal you get before
0: your games. Did you read any other Jeopardy reference books besides Secrets of the Buzzer? No.
1: I read a lot of blods though. And there's, like, too many mm. to list, too. And that's actually kind of—that's really good, too, as a contestant. Because, like, you know, there's the blods of people at— won the tournament of champions and there's a bloods of people that lost on their first day and were pretty devastated by it. Right. And so to kind of know that, Hey, like this is your one shot, but there's, I mean, it's what 70, 75% of everyone in jeopardy loses their first game because like most people, you know, on average contestants win more than one game. So it's like 70 to 75%. That's probably very likely going to be you and you need to kind of be ready for that. And so to kind of read all these odd and there's too many, great ones to list but just to read some really well written awesome blogs and 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 just like amy and matea would post on twitter like um recaps of their games just to know what to expect and know that it's going to be an emotional roller coaster not everything's going to go your way you're going to get bad breaks you're going to get good breaks you're going to get questions right you're going to get questions wrong and just keep riding that wave really helped me just kind of just stay in the moment one question at a time and just enjoy it the best you can. If you win, awesome, but even if you don't, I mean, it's it's such a fun experience to be there and, and play the game on stage and just be part of Jeopardy for a day.
0: That's all the questions I have about buzzer technique and strategy. Now I'd like to get more personal with you, Eric, and talk about your career as a meteorologist in greater detail. How does that sound? Sure. So when you were on Jeopardy, three of the stories you shared were weather related. You wanted to become a meteorologist since the age of six. You've chased tornadoes out in the Midwest and you currently work for the National Weather Service. So I guess my first question for you is what does it take to become a meteorologist? Besides weather, what else does someone have to be interested in to pursue a unique job like yours?
1: A surprising amount of meteorologists kind of wanted to be one since they were a kid. Like a tornado goes to your hometown, or a blizzard hits, or a hurricane hits, and you just kind of get fascinated by weather, and you're hooked on it. And it's the only thing you can imagine really studying, but that only gets you so far, right? So like you can go to school and major in atmospheric sciences, right, Um, which is pretty math and physics heavy. I mean, all the weather is, is just the physics of how the air moves around. But computers is huge, you know, computer programming, so you need to have some computer skill programming skill. I got to have some math skill, or at least you have to get through the math classes. I certainly didn't have a lot of math skill, but I got through the classes. I mean, kind of what helps with Jeopardy is just like the kind of curiosity about everything, because mm. every day is different in meteorology. Like there's probably something you haven't really seen before. Like every weather event's a little bit different. So just kind of having that, oh, what's today, Dona Britton, kind of curiosity, I think is a lot of meteorologists have as well, in addition to like the math and physics and computer skills.
0: Is there one weather event in particular that you covered that was like the craziest thing that you've like covered in your career or anything that sticks out in your mind right now? Uh, Yeah,
1: there's, I mean, there's a lot of them. We had a huge storm this past December. There was a big blizzard to our North in the Dakotas, Northern Minnesota. And then you had tornadoes and severe thunderstorms in Iowa and in Minnesota during the month of December, which doesn't happen. Like it was we had thunderstorms here in minneapolis there was still there's still probably like eight inches of snow on the ground because it had Oof. snowed like a foot or more a few like the week before and so we saw that snow pack. and meanwhile there's thunderstorms and pouring rain and lightning with snow still on the ground and then to our south in iowa there were a bunch of tornadoes and severe wind that one was definitely like a whoa this is the intensity of this is something i haven't seen before but there's usually one or two big surprising ones where you maybe don't see them coming. And they uh, surprise you a little bit when they, uh, wow, we had that much snow out of this storm? Crazy. Or that many tornadoes out of the storm? Whoa. So it's just fun, though. That's part of the fun of it is is every day is a little bit different.
0: Putting it all together, in what ways, if any, did your background in meteorology affect the way you approached preparing for Jeopardy?
1: I mean, I had someone ask me, oh, if you you make those big do- daily double bets as you're a storm chaser. Clearly, you're like your adrenaline junkie and not afraid. <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean... Maybe a little bit. I wouldn't say I'm like a a hardcore adrenaline junkie, but yeah, it's fun when you're out there chasing storms, you know, kind of seeing the wonder of nature up close. I like kind of getting my heart rate up a little bit. Honestly, I mean, meteorology, our job is to take an insane amount of data and find connections in it. Kind of take a bunch of data, find the patterns and connect the dots and find the most likely outcome or most likely story out of all this data which is exactly like reading a Jeopardy clue, right? You read the clue Mm. and you have to quickly process what are they actually asking me in this clue? And then kind of do those like Pavlovs I talked about, draw those connections where this term means this guy, you know, or or things like that. This country is this musician or this artist and do that really fast. And so I think meteorology helped with that. Just that's what we do. We process an insane amount of data and sort through it really quick. And then it helps to have a stats background as well because Mm. like- you see those big daily double bets and it's like, wow, this guy's crazy, but no, that's the right, that's a smart bet to make when you're, you know, if you track your stats and know your daily double percentage and it's a category that you like, that's the smart place to do that true daily double because that's your chance to put the game away right there and probably eight or nine times out of 10, you're going to get it right. So that always helps too.
0: Now that we're done with that segment, it's time to get into what's probably my favorite part of the show, game breakdowns where we take a closer look at notable clues, categories, and wagers that might have affected the outcome of specific games. But before we do that, I have some quick stats to share with Eric and our listeners, courtesy of the Jeopardy fan website. Most impressive stat I found? Eric was first in going into Final Jeopardy in all seven games he appeared in, five of which were lock games. Of the current roster of Jeopardy champions slotted for the next TOC, Eric is currently fourth in average Koryat score with 20,514. And in that same group, he ranks fifth in daily double conversions at 87%, which is incredible considering he found 71% of the daily doubles available to him during his run and found all nine daily doubles across three consecutive games. That actually reminded me of Jaskaran Singh's stat line, where he found 75% of the daily doubles available in the four games he played and found all six daily doubles in the finals of the Jeopardy! National College Championship and speaking of jaskarin he will also be joining eric in the toc later this year so eric tell us was daily double hunting part always part of your gameplay strategy or did you happen to use up all your good fortune for the foreseeable future
1: i mean i had a lot of luck that's for sure i mean finding was it 11 in a row at one and like three straight games where i got them all i hunted for them, right but there's still luck to find them you know you watch the goat tournament you watch a lot of these mega tournaments even tournament champions it's you've it's all about the daily doubles. I mean, it's mm. that's how you turn a game right there. Even if you get one and bet $5 because you hate the category, that keeps your opponents from getting it, betting big, and putting mm. you in a bad spot. So it is so key to to find those. And there's all sorts of data online where you can, you know, there's the heat maps and stuff that people way smarter than me did the computer science, data science, and figured out. I just know how to doodle stuff. And you know where they show up on the board, right? And so I think if you turn to Jeopardy strategy, like James Holzhauer pretty much perfected it, right? Like we all saw that. But you have to be as good as James to really do that, right? And Matt did it pretty well as, as well, but... I knew, I was like, I can't start in the bottom row. I just, I'm going to, if I start in the bottom, I'm going to let a lot of clues go by. I'm going to be ready for. I won't know them. I might get them wrong. Then you're in the negative. But the percentages are pretty similar between the $1,200 clue and the twelve hundred and the $2,000 clue with like, you know, at least the third row and the fifth row with the fourth row being a little bit higher in terms of where they're most likely. So I figured I'll start at the, I'll start at the third row and go down you know, and kind of flip the through the opposite of the whole tower there a little bit. Um, you don't build up as much money that way, which, you know, is why I'm not making insane amounts of money in all my games, but uh, you had the same kind of odds as finding them. And my goal is just to find them, find them fast, basically keep them out of the hands of my opponents, right? Don't let them put me in a bad spot. Then if I get them, if I get them get them right, then I'm gonna put them in a bad spot. So that was kind of the strategy going in and to pull it off was pretty cool because like I said, I got two of my first three wrong. I think it was and lost like 8,000 bots on them. Like I got a, a big one run in the, in the last, like late in my first game. And then I got a true daily double run in my second game, put me back to zero, not fun. Right. But I, you never, you can't, you know, it's a smart strategy. So you can't doubt it. And I knew like, eventually I know what my averages are. I know I'll start getting assemblies right. So I, I stuck with it. And finding 11 in a row, right. is probably a little above my average, but, um, You know, I I took advantage of it. But then you also know that you're going to come back to, right? You're going to have reversion to the mean. And so I knew there would be a game eventually where I didn't get any of them, where I would get one raw late and I'd have to build my way back up. And that happened in my last game. And I just, you know, that's what happened. And you got to win one the old fashioned way in Final Jeopardy. And I I just couldn't get it done.
0: The last that I want to bring up before moving on to specifics is your Final Jeopardy get rate. Final Jeopardy didn't matter for the most part since five of your games ended in locks, but you seem to struggle a bit with the clues you got. The Final Jeopardy categories during your run were Greek mythology, writing old and new, American history, children's literature, the Western Hemisphere, TV legends, and 1972. Were the clues and subjects you weren't too good at, or was it a case of if you were given 30 more seconds, you would have had the correct response i know you tweeted that you were kicking yourself over the little prince in your fourth game
1: yeah that's the one like the one regret not not regret but like the one oh man i wish i'd done better you know of that whole experience was the final jeopardy's were not good like you said if i had more than 30 seconds i'd get it right no if i had less time i think i would have gotten it right because my problem was i would come up with these right away and then start to think a little bit so i had little prince right away and then i somehow convinced myself that wait was goodnight moon french yeah i think it may have been and, you know and then kind of like you know go with that and the the richard nitsa one i obviously overthought too in my last game i'll be honest it got in my head a little bit which is a little disappointing like and i think amy even mentioned that late because she had an insane streak to start her game she was like oh. on a historic pace and then she you know had a stretch where she missed quite a few in a row and and it's mm-hmm. just like it gets in your head when you you start to just overthink a little bit right and 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 you're not you're not reading the clue or you're trying to see things within the clue that aren't there honestly having a lot of runaways too maybe played a small role because like even though i had a runaway i would still take some time on my wager just to basically calm myself down before the next Mm. game but then you kind of lose your edge a little bit too you kind of like you're you kind of lose your adrenaline and maybe you come a little flat and your brains i don't know but like yeah it's something that that's obviously something i will n- cannot happen in tournament of champions or I'll be going home very early. Basically, it's just, dude, whatever comes to mind first, write it down and put the pen down and just put your hands in your pocket, you know? <laughs> that's might be the strategy going in. But yeah, that's just something that I don't really have a great explanation for. it. There's a couple things on why I did so poorly, but it's that's not how I normally was doing on those leading up to it. So I don't really have an a, a exact reason why.
0: So moving away from Eric's individual stats, let's get into the games themselves, starting with his first win over Ryan and Stephanie. Now, unlike Roan with Amy and Danielle with Matea, you weren't able to glean any information on how Ryan played the game. You were thrown straight into the fire and had to adjust accordingly. I know you said daily doubles and being like really aggressive was your strategy going into it, but once you got up there, were there did you make any changes on the fly um, to your strategy, if any?
1: no i was just holding on for the ride i mean i was so i was i was nervous the whole time right never felt super comfortable up there but i was so nervous for that first game and i can like hear it my voice too because i watched that game again and you're just holding on taking it one question at a time yeah and like i had known nothing about ryan right nothing about his play style nothing about his story right i mean like Mm. you talked about just an incredible story he had. but i just knew that hey it's just all you got to do is give it your best shot. You can't, you're up there against other competitors, but really it's you against the board. Do you know these mm. questions? Can you buzz in first? Can you hopefully get a daily double or two and bet big? And so that's all I could do. And it was, it like, my Corey out was not good. Um, everyone was really equal on the buzzer. Stephanie was great. I feel like Ryan probably was a little slow that game because it's got to be so hard to come back and do it all over again from you know flying across the country to get that rhythm back especially in your first game i know a lot of super champs lose on on monday games so i don't think i don't think i got ryan's a game i think he was maybe a little rusty on the buzzer too but like I said, I was able to sneak out that small lead at the end and, and then get it done.
0: On clue four of the Jeopardy round, you went all in and made a true daily double, something that you did quite often if you found a daily double in the Jeopardy round or early on in double Jeopardy. It's a known fact that two thirds of the money in Jeopardy can be found in double Jeopardy. So I'm curious to know, Eric, if that's sort of what motivated you to make these such whole and wagers.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's you know, there's I'm not the person to come up with this strategy, it's out there, but you know, true daily double in the first round is usually always a good bet. Obviously, if you just hate the category, that's different, but there's a lot of money to make up. And then, second round, right? If it's early, like the first couple of questions, there's still a lot of money left on the board, so that's not a bad time to go for it. Obviously, if you have like 15,000 set in place is like 2,000, maybe you don't do the true daily double there unless you're James Holtzauer, but like I was at like 3500 butts it's like what you know what do i got to lose and plus playing a super champ i knew i was going to be all in all the time so yeah i didn't have really any doubts going big on that one i the category was it was d-day it was history i was like i'll probably be pretty good at this one although it was a movie one that uh i'd learned from studying uh the longest day um so that was nice but uh yeah pulled that one out
0: the next game i have notes for is your third game against maggie and tessa Despite being a lock game, I'd argue this was one of your more competitive games because of the data from the official box scores. The scores going into final don't justify how fierce of a competitor uh, Tessa was. You and Tessa attempted to buzz in around the same number of clues, and both of you had a good handle on the buzzer. The game actually wasn't decided until the last clue of Double Jeopardy, and it was the difference between a lock game versus giving Tessa a small chance at becoming champion. To prevent the lock, Tessa had to buzz in and get the final $2,000 clue right. Unfortunately, while she did manage to buzz in on time, she was incorrect and sealed the game for Eric. According to Tessa's tweets, she was in fact aware of the math surrounding the last clue, but Eric, did you recognize the situation you and Tessa in were in during taping.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was that was the uh the right decision. And I mean Tessa was so good. She was one of those ones where you kind of watch people in in rehearsals and she was quick and she was smart. So I thought she had it, right? It's kinda like I would kind of start with my more confident categories and leave my less confident ones for later, which means you'd sometimes build up a big lead, but then watch it whittle away a little bit as you're not really answering as many. And watching that runaway go from pretty safe to smaller and smaller and smaller. She made a great run at the end of that game. And yeah, like, you know, to come one question short and um, like I said, I don't think she didn't know it, but you've just, you, you, you lose no matter what. So you've got to take a guess there and definitely the right call um, there, you know, there's not a ton of, portuguese cities right so you got a pretty decent shot at it to everyone's credit man it's very easy to put the buzzer down and give up after that but she just kept fighting and made it a game all the way to the very end so it's just so impressive
0: next up are my notes for your fifth game against randy and siobhan am i pronouncing that i think i'm pronouncing that correctly it's an irish name um again despite ending in a lock this game wasn't decided until clue 29 when Siobhan correctly answered one of the last two $400 clues left on the board in Double Jeopardy. Had Randy answered both of them correctly, Randy's score would have been exactly half of Eric's, 14200 versus 28400 Those two $400 clues were the difference between a lock game and a lock tie game, which would have made for a fun Final Jeopardy waging scenario, did this outcome ever occur to you or Randy? Did you two ever talk about this possibility together?
1: Oh, man. I was talking about another another awesome, awesome player, man. Randy was so good. Oh, my goodness. I, I knew what five games means, right? And I knew I had to play Randy to get there. And I was not comfortable for this game. I mean, my daily double bets were tiny because I kind of had built up a little bit of lead the old-fashioned way but I'm like, I can't fall. If I fall behind Randy, I'm not getting it back. And so I did some just tiny bets and it kind of almost bit me there because yeah, he was one or two questions away from, from breaking that lock and he got it right. I didn't, I'm still, I still don't know how I got a geography question wrong. I just, I just didn't, I focused on the DeVisor part of the clue and got equator in my brain, whatever, good old thinking too much. But um, yeah, I like, I didn't know, I didn't know the stores right? I mean, I, you kind of, there's a scoreboard, but like I said, he's just he goes on a run at the end of the game and gets closer and closer and closer. And I saw people talk about it on I think on like the Jeopardy Reddit or on Twitter where they saw my reaction where the game ends and I'm up there and I'm looking at the scores and I'm doing the math and then I see the runaway by like 800 bucks, and I just I just like the biggest sigh of relief knowing that I. <laughs> I escaped because yeah, he would have won. Right. I mean, he would have won. He got it right. I got it wrong. That's it. Right. There's I'm sweating <laughs> incredibly for the next couple of months with, you know, if I'm four games and on the tournament champions bubble, who knows, but I was able to just eke it out there. But again, like, I mean, I was looking at some stats in that game. I had 30 right in that game in a $25,000 choreo, right? Like that's amazing game. And Randy still was like two questions away from winning it. To, to say of how good of a, a player he was. Just,
0: just awesome. Finally, I have your notes on your seventh and final game against Barry and Megan. Notably, you couldn't find any of the daily doubles in this game. The first two went to Barry, while the third went to Megan. According to the official box scores, everyone was pretty much even in buzz percentage, hovering around the 53 to 55% range. But because of the lead you managed to accumulate going into final, Megan, who was in second, found herself in a crush scenario where the only way for her to win is if she got Final Jeopardy right and you got Final Jeopardy wrong. Lo and behold, this is exactly what happened. Megan was the only one who got Final Jeopardy right and strategically wagered enough knowing Eric would bet to cover her doubled score. The correct response was who is Richard Nixon, but, you know, I read the clue again, and I can definitely see why you might not think the quote was from him because it reads as if someone else is speaking to him, which is, I assume is what you thought as well. Yeah. That first part where it, it
1: 1972, I'm like, well, I wasn't born then, you know, so that's not going to help, but I mean, it's history. I feel pretty good with history, but then, yeah, it, it comes up and you're like, oh my, yeah, Richard at Watergate, Richard Nixon, duh, like right away. Right. Not saying I would have written it down right away, but I'm like, it's definitely, a, it's definitely a Watergate quote. And then I read it again and it's that tell them dot 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 and to me i'm just like oh it's someone telling richard Nixon to say that because i remember he had this like televised you know he talked to the american public during the Watergate scandal and basically lied to their faces right about the whole thing and that was a, a big moment in his downturn you know and so i was like oh it's probably someone telling richard Nixon to say that during his speech so who would have t- told him to say this Oh, like John Dean. John Dean was his chief, you know, his, um, his counsel, right? The guy kind of turned him in on Watergate. And uh, I felt pretty good writing that down. Um, I was like, yeah, I think I got this one. All right. And when they went to Barry's answer of Haldeman, that was another one of his lawyers. And I was like, oh no, I forgot about Haldeman. And then when they said he was wrong, okay, we're still doing pretty good. And then Megan Richard Netson, and that's correct. It was like the, oh my God, I overthought it. You know, and like I said earlier, I was... Like five seconds of, oh man, you idiot! But then just seeing Megan's reaction, I'm like legitimately being so happy for her. You never want to lose on Jeopardy, right? But to almost be able to relax and just knowing all I had done and what I accomplished and knowing it to come back,
0: I was that wasn't sad for two lines. that's is what I'm saying. The overheard segment for this episode wasn't uploaded to the Jeopardy YouTube channel. Was there anything special that happened, like as the credits were rolling or like the music was playing?
1: Yeah, it was really funny. Um it was funny to watch that looking back because like you said like i just i just lost right and instead i'm like smiling and laughing and stuff because barry was such a fun oh my god that guy crats the most jokes he was such such an insanely smart guy and just such a funny guy right away he's just like there's no way it could have been nitsen and i'm like right are you right As he did the same thing he overthought it and then you know megan just like oh like i thought i was being too simple and it's like no like i found jeopardy so many times the simplest answer is the right answer. Like they're not trying to trick you. And it's so hard not to tell you to tell yourself tell yourself that in the moment. But way more often than not, you're gonna overthink Final Jeopardy than underthink it. And I think it's just because you have so much time to think about it versus in the game where it's just reaction time. It's just, you know, you either know it or you don't right away um so that's what we were talking about was basically he, th- he did the same thing we didn't talk about i don't think we talked about her wager too much um but obviously it was like the the perfect wager at the the right time right and obviously she she did it quite a few times after that
0: all right that's everything i have in my notes breaking down some of the games eric played in let's go back to your overall contestant experience was there any part of the jeopardy contestant experience that surprised you at all
1: just how much harder it was up on stage versus playing at home. Like, I, I expected that, right? I knew like your brain's not gonna be working the same. You're gonna be a lot more stressed out, a lot more anxious, whatever. It's so much harder up there. I mean, obviously, just getting used to the fact that you're not gonna be able to buzz in every time and dealing mm-hmm. with that frustration and just how fast it goes, right? You really have to take it one question at a time and shake anything off right away because you can't sit around and mope because you're gonna miss like the next two or three questions. I went back and looked at some of the, you know, watched the games later and there's a lot of like, there's some where you're like, whoa, how did I know that? I don't know that now. (laughs) But there's so many more where you're like, dude, you know that there was a clue that was just Mads Mikkelsen. It was just a picture of Mads Mikkelsen. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, it's Mads. And I I like couldn't, I was like, I know, I know who it is. I know who it is. I just can't, I can't say his name because I'm going to probably get it wrong. And so I had to let that one go. And just so many of those where you're like, you just can't pull the trigger because it's so much more real. When all right, you know at home you get a question wrong, you lose a thousand dollars. Okay, cool, my core hat went down a bit. But on stage, you're probably losing two thousand because someone else is going to buzz in and get it right and rebound it, and so they gain a thousand. And I tend to be a little bit more aggressive, maybe with my buzzing. At least I thought I was, but they had to just let some go, so I just couldn't pull the trigger on them, even though they were they were right. I had it. Um, So that's the that's the main thing.
0: Do you still keep in touch with either of your contestant cohorts? Did you connect with them immediately after taping? Or did you wait until closer to your air week before reaching out?
1: I didn't really talk with anybody until like the week before the games or so and then during the games themselves.
0: There's quite a few
1: people kind of informal kind of Twitter chats and stuff like that. Actually, Molly was uh, I didn't play her but she was on my second uh, game. She played in the Friday game. Uh, with megan and uh she was from minneapolis too so we've actually you know just met up met her her and her husband um we kind of just hung out here in minneapolis so that was really cool getting to meet and talk with somebody from your town but yeah just kind of like just kind of typical talking to people about the games and stuff um you know the remembering you know everything from that day it was such it was both days were so much fun but uh it sounds like the uh the tournament of champions at least from what I've heard from past contestants in them is more like what you had in the college tournament where it's like, you're, you're there, you're at the same hotel, it's a whole week. And so there's like the lot, there's a lot more camaraderie, right? Versus yeah. just, you know, it's, Oh, everyone's, everyone's there for the day, but you're all at different hotels because during COVID I don't think they have like a set hotel anymore. So everyone kind of disperses and everything. Um, so I am, I am so excited for the Tournament of champions. I mean, just to meet all these awesome Jeopardy content players and just to hang out with them, let alone get to go up against some of the best that have ever done it.
0: Did you have a quote unquote taping buddy while on set, you know, like someone or multiple people you got to talk to and really get to know?
1: Yeah. I mean, Molly and Molly, they talked about, you know, she was from Minneapolis, so we talked quite a bit, but um, the first day was kind of tough for me because when you play in the first game and keep winning, you don't really get a time to like chat with anybody because you're always up on stage and the champions kind of doing their own thing and at lunch with COVID, were you guys in the parking garage?
0: Yeah, we were. <laughs> yeah, so you're
1: to, you kind there's really only like three or four people that are around you you can really talk to. So yeah, that first day was really just lunchtime. And then um, Randy and Tessa actually were outside after the games waiting for like Uber's lifts with me. So I got to talk with them quite a bit, which was, which was fun, but I wish I'd gotten to do it more during the day. So the second day I just had, I lost, right? So I had just so much more downtime. In the audience, right between breaks, to talk with everybody, um, which was really cool. So, like uh, Steve was hilarious. Uh, he was such a he got two dollars by Megan as well. So we were definitely joking about that, you know, in our in our chat. Um, just everyone, full stage was just just so much fun it's just so cool to have so many people who are big nerds and excited about the same thing right um and just have that common interest
0: now that you're a part of the greater jeopardy alumni community have you been able to chat with other contestants or join any online or local trivia leagues
1: yeah that was that was so cool i mean the first the media storm like the first week was obviously i knew it was coming but it's still very hard to prepare for and like i wasn't i mean come on like i wasn't like matt or amy or like the stuff Matea did, having a national sensation. Are you kidding me? Right. So, like, I just had like Twin Cities media, but then like the weather channel and Acu, like the big cable weather channels maybe got me a little bit more publicity than maybe a typical like five or six game champion might get. But I, I knew, like, obviously I knew I was going to lose in that Tuesday game. So it was like the Monday nights before that game, I, I like went to my DMs on Twitter. I didn't, I didn't look at them. And I had like a ton of them from like past jeopardy champions right past people who've won the toc before people who are in this year's toc and just saying you know man you i loved how you played the game that was such a great strategy you were so good and just that was so cool to sit and sit back and respond to everybody and just like you said feel part of the greater jeopardy community uh got a couple learned league invites which i didn't really know what that i didn't know what <laughs> was that was i didn't have know what that was yet? before like december never heard of it before and I was like, oh, this sounds pretty cool, but I have no idea of anyone who's going to invite me. So I guess maybe that's a perk of winning on Jeopardy is you get a lot of people inviting you to Learned League if you're not already in it. So yeah, I think I'll be doing that. Um, I think it's an audience it starts up. So uh, that'll be cool. But other than that, yeah, I do a lot of bar trivia here in the Twin Cities, but that's mostly fun with friends from work and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I've known about Learned League for about a couple of years now, like maybe like four years or so. I always thought it was like, a Jeopardy contestant exclusive like community where you had to be on the show in order to be invited because it's invite only. So um, I always thought it was like this exclusive club where if you were on a trivia game show, you'd be invited or whatever. But um, it's just for general like people who, who like trivia and are honest people. So uh, yeah, I did. I completed my most recent rookie season. It's a lot of fun. Um, You'll probably be smoked by someone who's better than you. It's definitely a humbling experience for sure. But uh, it's a lot of fun, especially when you read a question, submit your answers, and you're like, you know, I really should have known that. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, and like I said, like, you know, I, I went through, I was looking at some of, like, the past questions, and yeah, there's some really hard ones in there. And like I said, for, like, Jeopardy study, and it's kind of like, oh, you just need to know a little bit about everything. But no, like, Learned Lead and some of these, like, you know, quizzing, like, the the national quizzing leads and tournaments, like, that's, like, college quiz bowl stuff, where it's, like, you know, it's deep knowledge and i have yep. that in some stuff but by no means in like everything so yeah i'll probably get humbled here a little bit you know eventually the jeopardy stuff is i'm i'm so privileged to get to keep being part of jeopardy right i still have something to study for and all that stuff which is so cool because eventually right that's you're on that podium
0: for the last time and it's that's kind of yep. it
1: so i think learnly will be really cool to help keep that going in the future is to have that to look forward to.
0: Are there any other behind the scenes stories that you'd like to share with our listeners? Maybe something they didn't get to see when the cameras weren't rolling.
1: There's kind of a long story at the end of my second day of taping where my phone died while I was waiting for an Uber. So I had just, I had just clinched the turn of champions and won six games and won over a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like the court court, my jeopardy coronation right? I'm leaving the studio as a champion and my phone dies. And I'm waiting for a lift and Uber. And I'm like, I don't know if is this it, it still gonna come. So I go to the security gate for a phone charger. They don't have an Android charger, so they get something to bring me one. My phone is an old piece of crap. It's like a Samsung S6. So it's had about like stuff to do with my Jeopardy earnings, I guess. So the charger <laughs> they brought me was like the new charger, and I need the old micro USB one. So I had to walk across the street to the um, this gas station across the street to see if they had a little charger cable, and they did. And meanwhile, while I'm there, um, Sarah, one of the producers on the show behind the scenes Mm -hmm. are also part of the clue crew she's there like fill like getting gas and so (laughs) i had to look like a total idiot in front of her just being like no it's I just i need a phone charger it's fine you know and eventually got that whole you know got the phone charged got the uber everything was good um but that was kind of funny like you know my first purchase post jeopardy was like a eight dollar charging cable from this (laughs) gas station across the street from the sony studios so it's, it's not all glamorous, I guess, being a Jeopardy! champion.
0: Oh, man, I love that. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> have you read any messages from randoms or people from your distant past on social media? Any unsolicited marriage proposals? Or have you been mostly avoidant of that? sort of online discussion
1: yeah i mean i yeah i, I mean let's i don't do social media really to begin with but i was like well this is something i gotta you gotta embrace it right like this is a once in a lifetime thing but then you take the good with the bad on social media too right so you, yeah you read i'll read that stuff and it's like 98 percent, 99 percent, like all good stuff but yeah you gotta see like the everyone loved the like weird faces i would make when i was thinking and like people would get mad because they're like he knows all the answers. He's just doing it. And I'm like, that's my face. I make what I'm thinking, man. Like, my fiance was like, I'm like, do I do that? And my fiance's like, yeah, you do that all the time. Like, what, what should we do for dinner tonight? You do those stupid faces. Like, that's just what I do and I'm thinking. But yeah, it was really cool getting to hear from like people from like grade school, high school college people i hadn't talked to in a long time and like obviously like the people in the jeopardy community as well but i kind of said and like i said it's vastly 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 overwhelmingly like the positive stuff but i feel like being a meteorologist you kind of get prepped for like the negative social media comments because you know every forecast we do there's somebody complaining about it especially if like you know it snows more than what we forecast or whatever so that's kind of a good field to be in to prep yourself for negative comments on social media um which is kind of funny, but it was wild ride, like, you know, in the moment, especially as like, you're like, oh my God, the weather channel just tweeted about me. They have 4 million followers. What's going to happen next? And, uh, but then kind of as things settle down a bit towards the end of my, you know, towards the end of my run. Um, it was just really fun to be able to, you know, I said, just be part of the Jeopardy community for like a week or two there.
0: Aside from the $8 charger you bought from the gas station across the Sony Pictures lot, What's the next extravagant purchase you plan to make, obviously, after putting some aside for taxes, savings, and future investments?
1: Uh, so I've got a wedding coming up in October. Uh, nice. I got, yeah, so I'm getting ready in October.
0: So that'll be sweet. That'll obviously be
1: some uh, some money towards that. You know, we're doing we're honeymoon probably is like, oh, maybe we don't have to do like the cheap Airbnb, Airbnb somewhere or whatever. We can maybe do a little bit nicer there. So that's kind of the main thing up front is like the wedding and the honeymoon. I still need to probably talked with somebody about what to do, like, you know, how do I pay taxes on this again? And that kind of stuff. Uh, Getting married this year probably complicates it too with like, how do you file taxes for that? So that's kind of, there's a lot of things I need to do first for you to think about any of the money, but like I said, it's there. It'll be sitting in an account waiting whenever we want to do anything with it.
0: Eric, because you're our first guest who's expected to be in the next TOC, is there anything you plan to do differently to prepare for your competition? I mean, it's one thing to prepare for your Jeopardy debut, but when you know you're going to be up against the likes of Amy Schneider, Matt Amodio, Matea Roach, and potentially rematches against Ryan and Megan, what kind of mentality or approach will you be working with these next few months as you wait for the call to return to LA? I made that sound incredibly dramatic, but I'd still like to know where your head's at.
1: Yeah, uh, when you say all those champions right it's a it's a daunting task ahead of me here i mean matt and amy are so good right the wins the money their stats those two clearly are the ones that beat in this but ryan matea um jonathan fisher andrew he like there are so many great players in this tournament of champions i like to think that i know what to expect a little bit better going in right i know maybe be a little bit more relaxed be a little bit better on the buzzer but Everyone's been there before. You know, everyone's gonna have time to prep. I mean, some a lot more than others, right? My plan going in is just to just have us to have fun, right? Go in, try to find some daily doubles. If you find them, bet big and see what happens. Because, you know, if you find all three daily doubles in a game and get them all right, you're probably gonna win that game no matter who you're up against. It's just a matter of controlling the board and finding them and getting them right, obviously. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm a favorite by any means or even expecting that i can go up there against matt amy matea everyone and, and have a chance but i'm certainly gonna go out there and give it my best shot and like i said have fun try to do some big bets again and hopefully get lucky with them um but i'm just, just looking forward to it so much just to be able to be back in that stage again even if you lose in the first round just to just be able to have a front row seat to the tournament of champions probably the best tournament champions lineup they've ever had and be able to watch that from the studio is, is, is going to be awesome. I can't wait.
0: Sounds like a plan. And with that, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on to Post Podium to talk about your impressive run, your job as a meteorologist and your game decision making. I know it'll be hard to pick favorites in the next TOC, but I'm sure you'll have plenty of people rallying behind you to take the title home to Minneapolis before we sign off where can people find you online and is there anything or anyone you'd like to plug or shout out go right ahead
1: yeah so like i said, i don't have the biggest social media footprint but i'm on twitter that's kind of my main one i use and it's at erica hasik super complicated so you know my name and yeah like i'll be probably obviously posting more jeopardy stuff as tournament champion starts ramping up otherwise you know i gotta plug it it's the national weather service right you know i know everyone's got their favorite apps and everything they use to get their weather data but you've got a, a bunch of very talented meteorologists in your backyard who are just forecasting for your area you know you can go to weather.gov uh and, and type in your zip code and find your forecast there but also just realize that anytime there's a severe thunderstorm warning tornado warning Blizzard warning, fire weather warning. That's uh, some meteorologists working 24-7, 365 behind the scenes, doing those warnings to keep everybody safe. So just, you know... Just a shout out to all of us meteorologists out there who aren't on TV, right? Some of the ones behind the behind the scenes.
0: Perfect. And now this is when I close out the show by asking you to please rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Postpodium is available on all sorts of listening platforms, including Amazon Music, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. So make sure to follow and subscribe for the latest episodes. I've been your host, Jarek Bruel. And remember, if someone asks what you're listening to, Always phrase your response in the form of a question. What is post-podium? See you next time.